to the Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm Jessica Dahlquist, your host, and every week I interview a different mom who shares their motherhood journey and the lessons that they've learned along the way. If I've learned anything from interviewing such a wide range of moms, it's that no two moms parent in the same way. We should celebrate that and learn from one another. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today, and if you like what you hear, please share the show with a friend. Hey everybody, welcome to episode number 42 of the podcast. Such a great and informative episode for you today. My guest is Taru Clavel. Is that the best name or what? It's so awesome. Taru is a mom and she and I are going to chat about education today. She's lived all over the world and growing up as an English language learner herself, she personally has experienced what it is like to go through the public school system, to feel all the pressures of reaching standards and assimilating to a culture and a language that is foreign. She had her kids enrolled in Asian schools as well when their family moved to Asia. And she's just had a diverse educational experience with her kids and she's done a lot of research about the best way to educate kids. And we're going to talk about public schools in the U.S. We're going to talk about building global awareness with our kids, which is such an important factor that a lot of times gets overlooked when it comes to language conversations. We're going to talk about the differences between schools in Asian countries and why a lot of times their kids come out so much more accomplished and smarter than our kids in the U.S. It's a great, interesting conversation. And it comes down to there's no right way to educate your kids. And just because you provide better opportunities for your kids or better schools, better rated schools, it doesn't necessarily make them the best for your children, right? So perhaps you will get some food for thought in this conversation. You'll learn something and maybe can help out your own educational journey with your kids as well. So let's get to it with Taru Clavel. All right. I'm so excited to be chatting with Taru Clavel today. Hi, Taru. Hi, Jessica. How are you? I'm great. How are you today? I'm great. Where am I speaking to you from? I am in New York City right now. You are? Is that where you live? Yeah, just uh, moved back here to my hometown last summer, so summer of 2018, after having been away for 12 years. Awesome. long years, yeah. (laughs) We were there visiting in the city um, in August and just had the best, best time. Where in New York? Are you in close proximity to the city or more suburbia? We... We know we're right in New York City um, on the Upper East Side, and we live right above the um, 456 train on 86. So I kind of oh, feel like I'm gosh. in an upper version, upper town version of Times Square. Which Seriously. I, I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as you walk around, I think a lot of tourists feel this way. As you walk around, you're like, could I do this? And when you see, you know, kids scooting on their scooters and doing regular life in the parks amongst all the traffic and the horns and everything, like, it seems all so exciting and exhilarating and also so foreign if you haven't lived that existence prior. That's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. But so many opportunities for for culture and diversity and everything. And this is largely what we're going to talk about today. You've lived a lot of places and experienced a lot of different ways of of raising your kids. And specifically, we're going to focus on education today. But for people that don't know you yet, Taru, will you just give a little background on yourself and your family? Absolutely. So I, I grew up in this area predominantly between New York City and Connecticut. And I am the product of a Japanese immigrant. So at home, we were very culturally and linguistically Japanese. So Japanese is my first language. Um, And at the time, it felt very, very different growing up because I don't know if it was the schools I went to, um, 
probably, and, and where I lived, everybody pretty much spoke English at home. So I always felt like a little bit of an outlier. Um, and how that's important to what I'm about to talk about where I lived is that in 2006, my family had the opportunity to move to Asia, and that was for work. And at the time, I had a two-year-old and a six-month-old, and we left to go to Hong Kong and were there from 2006 until 2010. And my third child was born there in 2009, a girl. So I have a boy, boy, and a girl. And we enrolled my kids in the local, in a local public school in Hong Kong, which is different from what a lot of expatriates typically do, which is to enroll their kids in an international school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2010, we moved to Shanghai and again, enrolled our kids into local public schools. And thereafter from 2012 until 16, spent four years in Tokyo and again, the local public schools. And then from 16 to 18, we came back to the U.S., and that was intentional because we felt that uh, my oldest was going to be in middle school, and it was time to come back and really attend school in English and get to know who they are as U.S. citizens. And But we moved back to California, so back is kind of mm-hmm. you know a euphemism for coming back to the U.S., but not really to our hometown. So we were in, in the heart of Silicon Valley for two years, from 2016 to 18, and then finally... 18 uh last summer moved back to new york city yeah so wow what a journey what a journey that is a super interesting and and unique uh existence that is so that's so amazing so do you like moving what is your i've moved a lot too my husband was in the military and so oh yeah there's definitely challenges that come but there's no other way to meet the incredible people that we've met and visit the amazing places and you know have these opportunities we never would have experienced had we not lived in different parts of the country we've only stayed within the country but still how do you feel about moving and any tips for people that have experienced a move recently or going to you know it I I was actually just thinking about this yesterday because I've been um pondering doing a keynote discussion for families in transition um that's overseas and families that are traveling you know literally expatriates that are traveling from city to city in different countries and what I felt was so interesting is I don't think that's been chronicled very much in terms of you know, you think you're going from city to city and you're already an expat um, or you've already done it. So you're used to it. Like you're mm-hmm. just, you know, you've weathered the storm. But the reality is that kind of culture shock just takes on a new form because like it or not, we all seem to have expectations, you know, whether they be, oh, I'm old hat. This is going to be not a big deal. But even coming back to the U.S., you know, it's called reverse culture shock. There was a ton of culture shock. So I think the best advice I could I could give is try to be as relaxed and as flexible as possible because you literally have no idea what's going to happen. And, you know, as a mom, too, I felt like I was the one who was bearing the brunt of everybody's transitions. You know, so it's not just you. It's like if you have children, the older they get, the more sometimes challenging the transitions can be because they form their own communities and social networks and their own routines and understanding. So to uproot them requires, you know, transitions all over the place. Um, and, and it's really easy. I felt like as a mom to kind of, I don't, to to kind of put your kids first all the time and to not be as mindful of your own needs. And I think it's just really important to balance all of that. So actually every move we had, regardless of my work situation, I always gave, gave up my kind of my own needs for basically six months minimum, um, to meet those of my kids. And that included creating community for them, networking, finding my own friends, 
getting to know their schools, getting to know the city, and to really acculturate. I think that's a great, great tip. And actually, this most recent move we did, we moved last December um, to where we are now. And my kids had a really hard time, especially the first six months. And I felt like I really was managing their emotions and logistics, getting them involved in things and finding the right teams and everything. And we were just so wrapped up in all of that. Once things started to level out for them, that's when it hit me that I then needed to do the same thing for myself. And I was kind of struggling. And it's kind of felt weird nine months into our move that I'm struggling right now. But I think it Mm -hmm. is because that letdown is happening now. Like the kids and everything else is kind of stabilized. And I had been kind of ignoring my own transition and my own comfort and my own emotions I was feeling about the move and I'm feeling it now and so but now that I can acknowledge that I can do something about it but it did feel kind of weird that it was so delayed for me well I think that's what ends up happening with with any you know probably with any project with our kids you get so invested in what they're doing that you don't your go 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 mode and you don't Mm -hmm. really have time to process okay now they're okay now what with me and then when you finally kind of have that that window of time you really start thinking about, oh, wow, now, okay, now what do I do? Yeah. Like um, my kids have so, their people. Yeah. Do I have my people, right? Yeah. And so you yeah. have to make time and make space for that and be really intentional because people are not going to show up on your front door by accident, banging down, being like, let's be friends. Like nobody's going to know you exist until you put yourself out there. So you're going to have to say yes and show up places and keep showing up places and um just yeah it can be tricky though and I really have a lot of empathy for people that that move a lot and especially people that are more introverted that do struggle with kind of just showing up and you know befriending that random person at the park you know who have kids your same age or whatever it is it can be really overwhelming and challenging but also a great growing opportunity Hey everyone, I know you are loving my conversation with Taru, but I wanted to thank one of our show sponsors that makes this show possible, and that is Beauty Counter. You've probably heard about Beauty Counter by now, but if you haven't, Beauty Counter is the best way to clean up your makeup routine. Beauty Counter started in 2013, and they disrupted the beauty industry by shedding light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care and products we use daily. I cover a lot of cleaner options as sponsors on this show, and it's because I'm passionate about bringing things into my home that are safer and cleaner for my family. And I fully endorse Beauty Counter products. Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand, creating innovative and high-performing products. I would not tell you to just use something that is not actually gonna work for you. There are several products at Beauty Counter that I love and use daily. The first is their Lotus Glow Cleansing Balm. You guys, this cleansing balm that I use at the end of every night literally melts my makeup off and it feels so good. I have never had my skin feeling so good. I follow that up with the resurfacing cream and it is perfection. My skin looks great right now. In the mornings, I've been using their Dew Skin. It's moisturizing coverage, and it includes broad spectrum SPF 20 in it, and I love when makeup already has sunscreen in it, so I don't have to add on that extra layer when I'm not going to the beach or something, and I'm just doing errands. Beauty Counter has everything from moisturizers to cleansers to sunscreen. They're at the forefront of this clean ingredient beauty movement, and I want you to be able to try Beauty Counter. So go now to beautycounter.com and see all the cleaner and safer products you could be using. That's beautycounter.com. Thanks so much to Beauty Counter for sponsoring the show. Now let's get back to my conversation with Taru. It was the biggest shock when in 2010, 
10 at that point I had how old six a six-year-old a four-year-old and a one-year-old mm-hmm. and it was 2010 and I didn't speak Mandarin really at the time my kids did uh, because they learned in Hong Kong but it was that it was this culture it was a real culture shock where I invested so much in my kids and within a few months I just and I write about this in world class I talk about this transition period and it was hard to get out of bed because it and my but my kids were thriving because I threw everything yes it's supporting them but then what happened was when we moved to Tokyo in 2012 and it was different because I spoke Japanese uh, but I was so aware of my previous experience that I didn't want to replicate that when I was networking for my kids or creating their communities, I was so mindful of, okay, I'm going to meet this woman for coffee too. And I'm going to follow up with this person. And I made sure that everywhere I went, I was networking for myself, not maybe as much, but, but for myself as much as I was for the kids. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is such a great point. I, yeah, have felt all of those feelings and experienced all of those things and even just right this second I'm going through that. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I've talked to a lot of women who have experienced international life experiences and even birth overseas and things like that. And it's really fascinating to me how different the experience can be having a child in the U.S. versus abroad and everything. And I've actually never talked to anybody who's had a child um, in an Asian country. I've talked to European um, birthing experiences. And I love the postpartum support that women receive over there, especially, and just kind of how they incubate the fourth trimester a little better than we do in the U.S. and everything. And I just offer way more support both physically and emotionally in that. Tell me about your experience since you have that comparison, having had your third child over in Hong Kong. How was that? This is actually, it's kind of amusing. I have to say my first experience in a New York City hospital with my first child was flat out miserable. And I remember, (laughs) I think I was in labor for 21 hours and I didn't want any kind of anesthetic And my mother told me that when she was having me back in 1973, she felt like she was dying and nobody knew it. And for the first time, I kind of related. I was like, nobody here understands the pain that I'm going through. And it was a day when there was, I don't know, there was a parade. I don't, I don't remember what it was. So my OB couldn't make it to the hospital. She was like, it was just, it was like this nightmare. You know, my child didn't know, couldn't, couldn't couldn't feed. There was no one to teach me. There was no lactation consultant there. I mean, it was you know, I had to share a room with multiple people the first night. And it was, it was just, it was not an enjoyable experience to say the least. And then for my second, I switched hospitals, I switched doctors and, you know, but it was my second child. So it wasn't like anything was a surprise and it was a relatively easy birth in comparison, six hours, nice hospital, great doctor, great nurse. It was pretty cookie cutter. And, and frankly, my second child was almost 10 pounds. So is like fed very well and slept through the night. <laughs> And then, you know, and then my third child I have in Hong Kong. And like you said, people talk about how they treat, you know, moms in in, in newborns so well. They kind of are sequestered for months and, you know, they have so much support. Their moms, you know, the grandma at that point comes and takes care of everyone and they have a special diet. And in Japan, um, you know, they keep the the mom in the hospital regardless in a minimum of of a week Mm. so that everything is in order and there's a routine. So anyway, back to Hong Kong. It was amazing. I was like, now I understand why people want to have more than one child. And it was like, I mean, I went in, I went, they were like, you have to go to the hospital. You have to go. And I was thinking, I don't need to go to the hospital. My contractions, I, I've done this before. My contractions are, you know, five to 10 minutes apart. I'm fine. So when I finally showed up, 
the nurse had a had a wheelchair at the elevator expecting my baby to be already between my knees. It was so funny. And I was going, <laughs> I am fine. I am fine. Because I'd been in labor, I guess, at that point for about eight or nine hours. And I just refused to go to the hospital because I was like, I have this under control. And it was amazing. And the food was good. You know, the nurses kept coming because I wanted my third, Victoria, to be with me, you know, by my side the whole time. And they're like, nope, we have to show you how to bathe her. We have to show you how to, how to nurse her. We have to. And I was like, no, I got this. But it was amazing. It was like there was there was a nurse for me and a nurse for my baby, 24-7 care, amazing food. It was it was it was as close to a hospital as a hospital experience as, as I can could probably describe. It was it was wonderful. It was really nice. Yeah, that sounds so, so great. And it is interesting, even in the U.S., the difference between just different hospitals in the same city. And, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, just what what we have access to and even just doctor to doctor, it can be so vastly different. But I love hearing about birth stories. And and, and it is interesting as you have more and more kids and you kind of know what to expect better. Each experience is so unique and, and different. And it's just nice. when You can have that little extra support and realize even if it's your third kid and you do know what you're doing, having someone just offer a little more assistance and acknowledge yeah. you just came out of a major traumatic bodily event. Let me help you. And just accept saying yes, hello, like that is amazing. You know, I never really thought about it. But now that you bring it up, it's interesting because, you know, I had kind of this hubris. I never thought about this where, you know, I, I would go around to these new countries and I'd say, you know, here's my third child. I'm not going to learn anything from this teacher or my second child. I've already done this preschool, first grade. And inevitably, I would be sitting there in these parent parent education meetings or parent teacher conferences. And within a few minutes, I would have a notebook out furiously taking notes because mm. I was like, oh, my God, I have so much to learn. So right. it's right. Like, it's not like the same rigmarole for each child. It was it was really an interesting experience. Yeah. And I talk about that in my book. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So what so what is your book? Tell people the book you wrote and what that is about. Um, so I wrote a book called. Yeah, it's called world-class one mother's journey halfway around the globe in search of the best education for her children. And it was um, just recently released by Simon and Schuster imprint Atria. And it basically chronicles through personal anecdotes, about 50% anecdote, 50% research. It chronicles my journey from um, starting in New York and then going to Hong Kong, Shanghai, Tokyo, Palo Alto, California, and back to the U.S., and it's about our education system and parenting decisions and what we can all learn from each other and, frankly, what we can do to help the educational experiences of our kids in the United States based on what they're doing um, what they're doing in, in the countries I was in Asia. And, you know, this is all predicated on the, the results that show repeatedly year after year that 15-year-olds in the countries I was in are – literally three years ahead by the time they're 15 academically in reading in um, science and in math. Hmm. So basically the way to say it is our 18 year olds, our highest performing 18 year olds in the U S are at the average level of 15 year olds in those countries. Okay. So how do they do that? <laughs> yeah, how do, so, so, so mean, what does, so what does schooling look like? What age do they start? What are the expectations? Like, for, for me, attending kindergarten in the U.S., the standards were much, much different than what my kindergartner now is facing in his kindergarten classroom. I mean, the schedule, let alone the standards, are very, very different. So 
what what did it look like uh, there? And what are the expectations coming into school and as they begin? Yeah, so compulsory education in Japan and in China begins in first grade, mm-hmm. unlike here where it starts just a year before in kindergarten. And it, it, it ends at the end of middle school. So there it's three years of middle school, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. So at the end of ninth grade. So anything after that will be considered high school, uh, 10th and 11th, uh, 10th, 11th, 12th grade is, is not mandatory. Whereas in the mm-hmm. U.S., you have to go through high school. That's, that's the law. Um, and it's very, it's, it's very interesting. We were told when we first put our kids into the local public schools in Shanghai, you know, everybody, the relocation agents, everybody like, are you crazy? You know, we're a communist country. Do you know what you're doing? You really should look at the international schools, that kind of thing. And a lot of it is because of the level of rigor. Um, and they, in the, in the East, um, in, in, in East Asia, rightly so have this assumption kind of that the u.s standards are much lower and that we weren't going to be able to keep up um and part of that is that by first grade before the kids even start elementary school in china kids are expected to know 500 characters to be able to keep up and follow okay i have have a quick question so is it all the public schools there is it all in mandarin or one of the Asian languages or is there English included too? What's the standard for public school over there? So, you know, China's a huge country yeah. with a population of 1.35 billion <laughs> and so many provinces, first, second, and third tier cities. And the socioeconomic and geographic um, gaps are, are somewhat, I mean, it, it, I shouldn't say that. Um, the socioeconomic gap has actually shrunk, uh, shrunk um, significantly over the last few decades, but there are disparities. Um, but so I'll talk about Shanghai, which is widely considered to be the highest, have, have the highest academic outcomes okay. of any place in China. And there, English is required and is taught starting in first grade. Okay. And they're subject-specific teachers starting in first grade. So there's an English teacher, a math teacher, a Chinese, a science, a history, right, right off the bat starting in first grade, which is very, very different from the U.S., where the elementary school classroom teacher is expected to teach across different subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's commonly understood that Chinese is the most important language. Okay. Um, then comes math, then English. And that's but that's shown by the, literally the number of hours each subject is taught okay. <clears throat> within a week. Okay. Um, and then you ask me what language they teach, um, what's their primary language. So across China, it's Mandarin. Okay. Um, and it becomes, you know, and their local dialects too, but that isn't taught, typically isn't taught in the classroom. Although depending on the area, that's, that's getting, that's changing a bit, but English is, is, is mandatory. So some schools can teach three languages. Um, all, all schools teach two starting at least in middle school and in Shanghai, it's two starting in first grade. And, English as, being the second language. and as an English language learner yourself, growing up with Japanese being your primary language, what mm-hmm. what would you say about if you have an opportunity to put your child in a dual immersion program, which are becoming far more popular in the United States right mm-hmm. now, um, learning a second language early on versus sticking with one? What, what's, what's your feel for that? I'm increasingly thinking that it's so much more important to have your children in the U.S. learn a second language because – not only does, you know, language comes with culture. Like mm-hmm. there's no way you can learn a language without understanding the culture of another people. And that automatically teaches you empathy, compassion, 
um, a global mindset, community, there's something bigger than yourself. But the actual act of learning another language teaches you skills that you kind of can't get in, in many other subject areas. I mean, as rote learning becomes increasingly out of fashion, which I have issues with, which we can talk mm -hmm. about as well, you know, to learn another language, you just have to memorize stuff. Mm -hmm. Like there's vocabulary you just have to memorize. And as grammar also becomes increasingly less popular to be taught in our classrooms, mm -hmm. right? You can't learn another language without studying its grammar, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and something that we definitely struggle with with our kids is patience, right? Yeah. That's a skill that, you know, these days, especially with the advent of technology or the pervasiveness of it, people, kids, hum, adults, right? We get immediate gratification, which... Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, I mean, I, when I tell the kids about the card catalog in the, in the library, they don't even know what I'm talking about yeah. here when I try to describe it, you know, um, or like having, if you have a research report, it could take hours and days just to collect the research materials. Right. And right now all they have to do a Google search. And so the idea of patience, right? And when you learn a language, it just requires a lot of patience. Um, and it also, another skill that you, you learn in, in, in learning another languages, you're constantly making mistakes, mm -hmm. right? Because you're trying to communicate, but you're not doing it necessarily the right way, but you have to keep trying and you fall and you have to get back up and you fall. And you, but that's not something that's necessarily taught either mm -hmm. in other subjects. So I, I, I think that dual language programs, not only do you learn another language, but the other skills and kind of the um, social emotional skills that you learn are, are, are vital, especially mm -hmm. today. Yeah, and I've heard for the dual immersion programs in the United States that there is being a shift towards incorporating more of the cultural aspect versus just the homework in, in the different languages and just the logistics of learning the language itself, but really embracing that cultural aspect, um, which I think is so, so wonderful for building, yeah, like you said, more global awareness and and just embracing the diversity. And um, yeah, I, lo I love all those points. I think that is really smart. I'm curious how much technology is used um, over there in their schooling and everything, because I feel like my kids are using so much technology in their classrooms right now. And I'm, I don't know if there's just, it's so new. I'm not really sure how mm -hmm. I feel about it. Well, I, I'm the first person to, to admit, I am very anti-technology in the classroom uh -huh. until it is modified, moderated, proven. Yeah. Right? In in the classrooms where my kids were in China and in Japan, it's it, I, I tell this joke. I mean, when I ask the students there, so, you know, have has there been more technology available in your classrooms? Because there really isn't any. And they get mm. offended. They're like, well, we have a light switch on the wall. We have plugs. You know, <laughs> we have an overhead projector. And I'm like, no, no, no. What about one-to-one? -one? You know, and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, one iPad or one laptop to each each student. They look at me like I'm insane. Wow. Um, I mean, it's it's happening more at the high school levels, but certainly not at the pre-K and the um, and, and the elementary schools. And teachers are using it for collaboration mm -hmm. and maybe for, for grading, just, you know, record-keeping. Right. right. Kind of like the way we may have used Excel or Lotus back in the 80s even. Yeah. But it's not happening with our children because, you know, tech, technology is kind of it's disintermediated the relationship, I feel like, between the teacher and the student. Right. And how can algorithms that are programmed by humans, right, teach kids better than an adult who is correcting papers and knowing when they see the work what yes. the errors are or I, I can I can go on and on about this, but you have. 
you know, basically for-profit technology companies going in and taking over where the teacher used to play such an important role. And I just don't believe that technology in any format and as, as AI becomes more and more mm-hmm. of, I won't even say a threat that it's going to take over in the classrooms, humans and human interaction can do so much more than what any computer can do because you know, a teacher can see a child sad, happy, frustrated, struggling, whatever it is, far more than a computer's camera can. Yes. And I, and I, in the 2017 and 18 school year, I, I traveled across the country and visited schools across the country. And there wasn't a school I visited where students were not either playing Fortnite all the time in high school. And I literally mm-hmm. uh, uh, followed a principal for a full day where he literally walked through, around classrooms just telling kids to get off Fortnite. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I've been in classrooms where kids are listening to music on their iPhones with hidden ear pods. I, uh, throughout the whole class, I went to classrooms where kids were told to do all their reading on their iPhones because there weren't enough textbooks in the school. Um, and you know, that's all they're doing really is, is chatting on social media. Not really, you know, they're getting too distracted. Um, I was in elementary school classrooms where kids were exposed to completely inappropriate content when they were doing research. Mm -hmm. I've been in classrooms where 15 minutes of the 45 minute period was spent on getting the correct password, getting the computer to work, getting, I mean, I can go on and on about the issues with technology and until it's intentional proven, I think we have to keep it out of our classrooms. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's to think that kids are grading, getting graded on social emotional behaviors on apps like class dojo. When, what happened to the days when the teacher just went to the student and said, sit down, sit up, you know, don't use a pencil that way. Stop passing notes, stop, you know, pay more attention. And now they do it through apps. Right. It's, I mean, we want to teach our kids, you know, human interaction. And when, the technology is taking over. We're sending really mixed messages. I mean, how can social emotional learning take place when technology is everywhere? I could not agree more. So then that begs the question, what do we do? Are your children in public school right now in New York? Or what so kind of schooling I'm, do you I'm, have? That's a, it's a great question because my kids were in public school in California. Mm-hmm. And then when we were moving back to New York, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the um, debates and the high, a lot of controversy going on in the New York City public school system right now with desegregation efforts. Mm. But basically, we were not going to have a residence in New York City until August, right before August, end of August 2018, for the start of the school year in September. And that meant that my middle school children at the time, were, there was only one school available to them. Because we were gonna, we it was too late. We passed a lot of the, the, the application deadlines uh, by years to get into any kind of a gifted and talented program, or to even be able to go to another school outside of the one that was zoned for us. Mm-hmm. And the only availability in that school was in the remedial track for both of my sons. Mm. And talk about a broken public school <laughs> system, right? So messed up. Yeah. I mean, it's it, and, and when we came back to the U.S., my sons, both of them, literally were two years ahead of grade level in math. So not only would they be not at grade level, but they would have been pretty much docked, right, one to two years in math. So they would have been four years behind in math from where their skill level was. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really, really sorry to say I enrolled my kids in the private schools. Do I think that's an atrocity? A hundred percent. You know, do I think it's crazy that we have to fork up so much money for tuition? I think it's awful. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely, I think our public school system is broken and we have to fix it. In other, where we were in China and Japan, private schools are regulated 
by the government. Do I think that should happen here? It can't, frankly, the way, you know, our system is working. However, there should be collaboration between public and private schools, and there shouldn't be such a disparity between the offerings. Right. And the fact that there is in New York City is, that means we're leaving, we're hurting our kids. There's so many kids that are being left behind. And it's, it's, I, I, I mean, I can talk about this for a really long time, but I've, I have a real problem that our public school system is not at, at, at a much higher level because in other countries it is. And we can go on. I know that we, that there was a brief talk about our talking about the varsity blues um, situation right now in the country, but that, yeah. that feeds right into that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and then that just makes me think of the poor families that not poor, quote unquote poor, but like the, the, the families that do not have the ability to opt into a private school situation. But well, the, the remedial tracks all that we have. That's kind of where we need to be then, you know, and then you're just setting your kids up. And I think all parents want the best for their kids, but either A, they don't know how to advocate for them or they don't really know what's going on inside the classroom. So they're Mm -hmm. not able to make those educated decisions for their family. Or even if they do, their hands are kind of tied based upon logistics or finances or whatever it is. And it's, oh, it's so messed up. So what would you say for somebody that, you know, I heard the other day from a mom who said their child is primarily being taught by the iPad all day long. All day long. And it's it's, it's, it's socially awful. acceptable, though. That's the thing. Like, yeah. it's becoming more and more socially acceptable. And if you disagree with it, though, what can you do? Because we can't just wait for the school system to catch up or the whole system to overhaul and change and adapt to what's possible and made possible in other countries, things like that. So what would you suggest based upon what you've seen in the schools and, you know, what are you doing? And it, and it pains me. One, and someone had to point this out to me a few years ago because I didn't realize this was what I was doing. And this relates to almost homeschooling and why there's such a such a push and in, in a, a growth in the homeschooling movement in this country. And someone said to me when we're when we're in Palo Alto because, my, for example, my oldest was only told he had to read three books in English class for the entire year, and two I believe two of the three he had already read. Hmm. Um, and even the, the writing was kind of like, okay, they produced three drafts for the year, writing drafts, because the teachers don't have enough time to correct them. And I was going, are, are you kidding me? Like yeah. he could do all this stuff in one week, like the entire required, you know, the requirements. I mean, not only him, but like a lot of kids, seventh graders could be doing that within a week's time, mm-hmm. you know? So what do I do? I lamented them at home. And, you know, I, I recently heard, and I'm not quite sure when this was filmed, but um, David Letterman interviewed uh, President Obama. And apparently when he was being raised in Indonesia, his mom didn't think that his his school was up to snuff. So it would wake him up at five in the morning and kind of homeschool him before he went to his regular school. And he said, yeah, it wasn't fun for anyone. Like I wasn't happy about it. She wasn't happy about it, but kind of like, what do you do? Hmm. And I, it's such a sad state right now that I even have to say, yeah, parent, you got to roll up your sleeves and fill in the holes because that's what's out there right now. I mean, your kid literally, like you just explained, could be on an iPad all day, Hmm. you know, and it's, it's, it's so sad. And there's this, this twisted concept with, with technology, which is, well, you know, if you're in a socioeconomically disadvantaged school and maybe you don't have, strong teachers teaching there, then it's great. The iPad is going to elevate 
whatever learning outcomes you may otherwise not have had. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But then, then you grow a dependency. Then you, you lack all these other skills, right? But yet it's still better than not having a teacher. Maybe, maybe so. But that should just be a babysitter until you can get a good teacher in the school. It should not be the answer. Yeah. And right now it is the answer. So unfortunately, what I have to tell parents is, and I talk about this in world class, I have text boxes, multiple text boxes that say, okay, these are the things that you'd have to do at home. Whether it be, you know, literally I say, you know, kids aren't learning discipline or community values, right, in the classroom. So these are the chores, depending on your age, that your kids have to do at home. Or one of my, in one of, in my appendix, I have um, a few pages on parents are not happy typically with political discourse going on or debate in the classroom. Yet look what's going on in our world. Mm-hmm. The greatest news hitting right now is a, you know is political. Yeah. Yet yet those conversations are typically not being had in our classrooms. Well, so, and these adults are setting terrible examples for how to properly debate because they just bash each other. And so it's like, maybe 100%. that should have been a part of their their educational upbringing and maybe it'd be, uh, d- disagreement would be uh, demonstrated I a little that. bit differently. <laughs> and I love that you say that because last night I was just interviewed on a very conservative radio show that's syndicated in 150 markets. And I was speaking to someone who, like, he's very conservative, right? And it's like there's no, you know, if you don't teach these kids in school and then you have to do it at home, how to agree to disagree, Hmm. how to have, what is it, positive civil discourse on what's going on. It it doesn't happen. So what ends up happening is if teachers bring up anything political in the classroom, they're getting criticized is, is, is preaching political indoctrination, I mean, it's like, it's so extreme right now that these are the things that you have to be doing at home around the dinner table, talking about politics, being civil, being respectful, teaching manners, teaching beliefs, teaching values, you know, learning that. I mean, and we can talk about the academics too. This is the stuff that unfortunately you have to do at home because right now, if your school, at your school, if your child is only required to read three books or outside of reading can be the same, very, very easy, let's say graphic novel, Right then you have to be encouraging your kids to read from a reading list outside mm-hmm. of, of school. Take mm-hmm. them to the library. Make that a common practice. You know, there are fundamentals that our kids don't have to learn anymore. And part of that is multiplication. Yeah. You know, I mean, if your kids are not forced to learn multiplication in third grade, you got to do it. Mm-hmm. Because there's no way that child is going to advance to any kind of higher level math without knowing their basic arithmetic. You know, spelling, grammar, I mean, these are fundamentals, right? You, How are you supposed to appreciate or be a good writer if you haven't studied spelling, grammar, syntax, vocabulary? And, you know, and I was, and I'm sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox a little <laughs> bit about this, but this whole concept of mastery and we're going away from kind of just hardcore rolling up your sleeves wrote, right? But there's no way there would be a Michelangelo or an Albert Einstein or doctors or lawyers, right? If if they didn't engage in this, just you have to memorize stuff sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit more rigor. Yeah. 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 And I love what you're saying that our conversation about education is not just about making your kids the smartest, right? Like, no. yes, you, yes, I'm sure you're very proud of your boys and them coming in with this great foundation academically into their schools. And, you know, we're so proud of them when they get great test scores or things like that. But 
It's the Mm -hmm. other things that are falling by the wayside and not being taught, like you're saying, like civil discourse and manners, problem solving and patience. I mean, these things are not listed in the standards, but these are just as important. And so when you're thinking through your educational decisions for your kids and do you need to supplement, it's not just supplementing them with more math facts and more worksheets or necessarily even reading more books, even though that is good. Are they also being taught these other critical life skills to help them be successful in life, in the workplace, and and in the school settings as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I and I don't want and I you know, and people think that because I went there's such an association with Asian schools is not being creative at, you know, mm-hmm. just hammering home facts. And that's not the case at all. Yeah. And I can tell you and I discussed this in, in, in world class. One of the most beautiful things that I found in Japan was the idea of community. And um, starting in first grade, you know, there are no janitors in the schools, right? Kids are required to bring in a rag that they literally hang by a laundry clip on their desks because at the end of every day, everybody has a chore. And it's not just, you know, wipe down the, the, the chalkboard. It's we're cleaning the toilets. We're literally getting down on the floor. Wow. And scrubbing our floors with our rats no way yeah i've never heard this yep and they run up and down they almost do races if you can imagine kind of the that is called a wheelbarrow race Uh right remember that (laughs) and you get in that position but no one's going to hold your back legs up and you and you have a wet rag and you literally race down the corridor with your friends with a wet rag cleaning going back and forth wow um you know and but what that teaches and and there's no you know there's no cafeteria uh, staff, you know, yes, there's a kitchen staff that cooks the food who is a full-time nutritionist and teacher. And they actually teach the nutrition for every single meal in the classrooms, if you can believe that. So we talk about longevity and lifelong learning and preventative medicine. It starts right there in the schools in first grade with healthy eating. Um, but what ends up happening is when you have these chores and, and you take care of one another in the classroom, it teaches you that there is something bigger than yourself for which you have to be responsible right and that yes. community and it starts and that doesn't happen in u.s schools no and i wish it i really wish it did because increasingly you know when and, and i'm guilty of this i almost passed out when this happened to me i'm on a new york city subway and i'm you know looking down at my phone and then i look up after i don't know one stop or something and there's this elderly man with a cane standing in front of me i mean my head is so focused in, and i'm in my own world that i can't even look up to see that I have to be giving my seat to somebody, Hmm. you know, and that's the stuff that's just completely falling away. But at least I was taught that I'm to respect my elders. Whereas I'm not sure that's even being taught to our, to our current kids. Yes. In schools. No, it is certainly not. And is it being taught in the homes then? Because that's exactly it. I mean, like we're saying, we can't expect all of our schools to, to follow suit to to what we think is the best way or anything like that. I mean, it's just, it just would take too much of an overhaul and would take too much time. And there's too much disagreement, quite frankly, over what best that's practices it. are. So that's unrealistic. Yep. You have 100% control in your home. 100. Yes. So if you get discouraged yep. about what's happening in the schools, you do the best you can with the school system and you control your family. Not like robots, but you, know, you control what's but happening within your four walls. Yep, that's that's so true. And I talk about, 
you know, what are your home values? And it's so important to communicate those and practice and model them with your kids all Mm, the time. mm -hmm. How do you define an education, right? Is it just the academics? Is it your sports? Is it these beliefs and values? How do you support your community? What kind of chores do you do? What are your thoughts on money that, you know, across the board and how do you define an educated person? You know, what is your goal? Because, you know, increasingly too, you know, with this talk of, in this country, everybody's supposed to go to college. And it's it's kind of insanity when you think about the sticker price being sixty to $70,000 per year for a private four-year institution, and yet everybody's expected to go to college? Right. How does that work? You know, whereas in the rest of the world, in most of the developed countries, the top universities are public or near free. Yeah. Right? And, and, it, and it's so... We, we have so many issues to deal with, but I think, like you said, the core values in these conversations where you have total control is your home. And these are the conversations you have to have. And, you know, and I do workshops with parents and it's interesting because a lot of the parents of young children, meaning preschool age, are like, ah, this is, this conversation is, you know, this happens later. This happens later when the kids are in, you know, sure. later elementary, middle school. No, you know, it happens from the time your practices when they're born, are you reading to them? Are you playing with them? Are you making eye contact? When are they using the iPad and the iPhone, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of music are you listening to? I mean, they're, they're sponges from, from day one, yeah. you know? And, and so I don't, I, I think like you said, in the family. Yeah. And I was just talking to my son this morning. He plays on a competitive soccer team and, mm-hmm. but his interactions with the teammates are limited to practices and games. And I mean, great group of kids and everything, but beyond just playing the soccer, like that's all we've had so far. And I thought, Hey Parker, why don't, you know, the first Sunday night of the month, we bring the whole team over to do some team building. And so I write that second, I texted out to the whole team. Hey, come over Sunday night, six 30 to eight families can stay if they want, or you can drop your kids. We'll do a treat. And every child bring your favorite quote about teamwork. And we're just going to have like a little lesson about teamwork. And I hope, I hope that it will transcend beyond just soccer. But like what kind of teammates do they want to be to each other? Being a great soccer team is not just about the footwork and about scoring the goals. It is about literally Mm -hmm. working together and feeling bonded to one another. And you can apply that to any aspect of your life, any relationships in your life. And if you just send your kids to school and then pick them up in the carpool line on the way home, you can't expect, well, I don't know what you can expect out of that, but you can expect far more if you're more invested in finding out what's going on in your child's classroom. How can you be more involved in your child's classroom? Filling in those gaps and everything and actually being proactive in doing something about it once you have that information is the only way to make change. Only. I want to say, yeah, I want to say two things just because it's interesting what you bring up about the teamwork because something that I absolutely loved in Japan and it sticks with me all the time is every time after there was a game, because my, my middle actually played soccer too, my oldest played baseball and it was the same thing. At the end of every game, the kids lined up in front of the other team and bowed mm. and then they will come to our team, to the parents and bow to us Mm. and it's this appreciation for everybody because none of that would have happened without an opponent and without the support of the families on both sides I love that and it was it was beautiful and you know in this country you line up and the kids high five each other you know those two lines right which is a good start but there's a bigger picture here that made all of it happen and you know they even in Japan they bow to the fields before they go on and Mm. they bow when they leave that's cool 
it's really, it's really, really cool. Yeah. yeah. And so when you talk about too, what you have to, if parents want to know what's going on in the classrooms, especially in public school, it's all accessible online mm-hmm. and the curriculum is, and it's really important that parents know, you know, what's happening and how it's being translated. Because I've talked to high school social studies teachers, one in particular who even said, you know, she's a very, very well-respected high school social studies teacher, and she teaches multiple AP courses. And she said, you know what? I don't like the War of 1812, and it's not on the AP, so I just don't teach it. (laughs) You know, and it's kind of like, okay, so if you use that model, right, and you think about all the teachers from K through 12, and all the things they just don't like, and what they're not teaching, or maybe, you know, this is a whole other thing, like, I'm not good at math, so I'm not really going to be a good teacher at math. You know, all this stuff that's being passed on, parents, unfortunately, kind of have to be aware of that because teachers, the best ones and the worst ones, they're not held accountable to a specific set of kind of required learning. They're more like guidelines that they have to follow. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could just keep going forever and ever and ever. But just (laughs) as kind of to tie this up with a bow and to give parents a little bit more hope, maybe, (laughs) because this does feel kind of daunting and kind of huge and insurmountable in a lot of ways, especially if your child is struggling in school. I mean, we're talking, you know, a lot of these things apply to high achievers, you know, things like that, where it's like it's much more accessible to them. But for children with special needs or, you know, that don't fit into a certain box where they are able to just progress, 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 right? I really have a lot of compassion for families and children um, who fall into those categories. So what is just one final takeaway that you would say to parents in terms of really being able to support our child in their educational pursuits, both academically, socially, developmentally, all of those things, like what is the one thing that you want parents to walk away with from this talk? I think one of the great things about the U.S. and our education system is that there is so much freedom. And if you really roll your sleeves up, it's kind of like the oper- the learning opportunities can be limitless. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, and, and unfortunately, a lot of the arts are getting cut in the schools if, if there's a lack of funding. But if you seek it within your community, you can find it. You can find the support. You can find the people. And you're not going to be initially just immediately pigeonholed into you can't do this. You have to major in this. You're not going to be. And that's not necessarily the case overseas. Um, Like, for instance, if you want to be a doctor in in many countries, actually, you have to pretty much decide that by the time you're sometime middle school. Um, because you have to go the math science track. Whereas in this country, you know, you don't even have to decide your major in most cases in colleges until you're kind of your second year of college. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just to show you, I mean, if it whatever need your child has, the advocacy component in this country, as frustrating as it can be, because you can hit your head against so many walls, good and bad, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. <laughs> and, and you really, you, it, it, it cuts both ways for sure. Um, because people tend to take advantage of that in, in those situations as well. But you can fight for your child to get the best opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and my kids make fun of me because when things academically, like if my kids aren't challenged or whatever, they often say, it's okay, mama will make it right. <laughs> you know. And I look at them like, well, I don't know. But you know, if my kid isn't getting challenged at school or something is, an awry, if something is awry, then I will address it. You know, mm-hmm. and that you, you have to be respectful. I mean, you know, you have to have their boundaries between you and the teacher and the, and the headmaster and, 
and, and whomever else is involved in your child's education. But the advocacy component here is, is, is remarkable and unique. So mm-hmm. I would say just, you know, take advantage of that as much as possible and roll your sleeves up, just yeah. roll your sleeves up because the kids can't raise themselves. Absolutely. And I have plenty of friends that are the ones starting the before school choir at their child's school, you know, once a week in the morning, volunteering that time. They started it. I know another friend who's passionate about the seven habits of highly effective people. They have it for children as well. She created a whole curriculum about it and she goes in and teaches the different grade levels, the the healthy habits. She just did it. Mm -hmm. Right. So we can do that. The other thing that I want to say to, to finish up is that Sometimes we think we want the best, well, all the time, we want the best for our kids, but it doesn't mean you have to go to the top rated school or the most expensive school or put them in all the lessons or things. You can go to a lesser rated school and have your child still be very successful. You know, you might think, oh, we have to have this teacher in order for fourth grade to be great. But just because they get a different teacher doesn't mean that can't also yield some positive fruit, right? By incubating our kids and by wrapping them in bubble wrap, that doesn't give them any better chance of being successful in this world. Problem solving and learning to listen to teachers that, you know, are not necessarily their perfect style, their perfect fit or whatever for one year. That's all part of it. And uh-huh. so if you, you know, have one year where you don't agree with the teacher or, you know, you're frustrated about certain parts of your school or you're you're not sure if you should just pull them out entirely, just kind of... I don't know, be a little bit more open-handed perhaps about what best looks like for your child and realize that it doesn't mean it has to be the perfect situation in order for it to be the best learning experience for them. Would you agree? That's a that's a really interesting and that's a, that's a really positive way of thinking about it because learning comes in many different forms and mm-hmm. it's not just what's in the textbook. Yeah. And, and there's so much to be said for learning through failure, challenge, and struggle. And that's that resiliency that... I don't think we are giving our kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk about this for a long time too, but there is something to be said for just like in sports, you have one game, you win or you're, or or you lose. And what I've been calling the 12th place, 12th place trophy is not doing our kids any good. You know, the participation trophy. And, you know, we, if you really want your kids to launch at 18, you know, which is kind of the standard that we've all been, kind of living by although now it's increasingly becoming 22 we're into the 20s or even 30 yeah um and part of that is because of the you know the the college debt that a lot of kids incur but yeah you know what skills do you that's something you have to work towards what are the skills you want your kids to to have by the time they're 18 and by the time they're 18 and that inqu- that requires parents letting the reins loose you know don't don't be don't be such a micromanager and technology is really bad at that right because <laughs> yeah. growing up we know when I struggled or when I felt lonely or I went to camp or whatever, and I didn't have friends the first night, it was kind of like, okay, it really, really hurt. And it felt sad, but I didn't have a phone where I was immediately texting mommy saying, I'm so sad. Come and get me. Talk to the head counselor, talk to the head of the camp because I don't have friends, you know? And it's kind of like cut the tether a bit. Yeah, that's it. That's it. We just need to create a little bit more space, but also Mm. have our kids know they always have a safe place to come back to within you and in their home, right? If they know they have that, they can can feel a little bit more empowered to venture out. 
Taru, this was so, so good. Thank you so much for sharing your life experience, the research you've done. Hopefully this empowers people to take a look at their child's educational experience and make the most of it. Tell people where they can find your book, World Class. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so World Class is available uh, on Amazon.com. I also did the audio for it. So if you're one of those audio listeners, please download that. And I love discussing anything having to do with parenting and education. Uh, So if you'd like to continue this discussion, please feel free to reach out to me. I have my website uh, with upcoming talks and events and such, teruclavelle.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And again, my book is World Class. Please buy it. Talk about it. Mm-hmm. Let me know. Even if you disagree with me, I love to hear it. I'm always up for a debate or a discussion. Civil discourse. <laughs> yes, I love that. Civil discourse, please. I think yeah, yeah. it's wonderful to have different, different opinions. Yes. Um, but we just have to be respectful. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you so much. This has just been such an enlightening conversation, and I have a lot to think about. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, thank you so much, Jessica. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It's such an interesting topic because in one way, it's great to get all this information. And in another vein, it's like kind of overwhelming. Like the more you know, the more you feel responsible for. But in this day and age, we cannot put our heads under the covers and expect somebody else to do the hard work. If we see a deficiency in our world, we can be the one to do something about it. So start small. Are you happy with how your school that your children attend is being run? Did they take out art classes and you feel passionate that creativity is an essential part of learning? Are the kids getting outside? Do they have a hundred mile club? Could you be the one to monitor that before school one day a week, right? If you see something that you are not a fan of, you can be the agent of change. You cannot expect systemic change in a massive scale when you're unwilling to help make that first step. And it can be a small thing, but it can be so impactful. Um, I have so many friends and I try as well to be involved in my kids' schools, activities, in our neighborhood so that they are getting the opportunities that I think are most important. Making sure that they have opportunities for music, making sure they have opportunities for physical activity, making sure that things like kindness and growth mindset are being taught. All of these things, they are so critical to our kids' development. It goes far beyond the academics they're tested on at the end of the year. These social, emotional, problem-solving skills These are the things that make accomplished adults, and we need to teach all of it. All of it. So pick up Taru's new book, World Class, if this is something that lights you up and you want more information. Obviously, she's very articulate and has great life experience and research to go along with it, and I know you will love digging into that book. So if you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at jessicadalquist3 or on Facebook at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. Everything that we talked about today, Taru's book, where to find her online, is all linked at extraordinarymomspodcast.com. All right, next week we have another terrific episode with another extraordinary mom. So we will see you then for another episode with another extraordinary mom. Bye.